Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 232. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lend at Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lend at Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lend at Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Kristen Berman. She is the co-founder of Common Sense Lab, which is part of the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. It's a behavioral science research lab, but focused on the finance space, and they've done some extremely interesting work. So I wanted to get Kristen on the show to talk about some of the work she's done and talk about how simple changes in design can have a massive impact on the success, on the uptake of different initiatives at fintech firms or any financial services firm. She goes through several examples in some depth and uh, we really get into some really practical takeaways that really any financial services firm can learn from. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay. So I'd like to get these things started by giving the listeners some um, background. You've had a, a pretty interesting career, so why don't you just give us a few of the highlights of what you've done to date? Great, wonderful. I'm a behavioral scientist, which means I study uh, decision making, mostly around the decisions that we fail to make correctly, and mostly within the fintech or the financial decision making arena of recently. My career, though, dates back. Uh, Dan Ariely and I, the author and Duke professor, started a rational lab close to 10 years ago now. And this is a company that works with organizations and cities and companies in order to make small changes to the design of products and services to nudge people to do things like save more, spend less, eat better, all things uh, behavior change for good. I also helped uh, with Dan start the behavioral economics group at Google. We were there for three years uh, within Google working to bring behavioral insights into that company. And then we founded Common Sense Labs, which is um, a really wonderful initiative uh, funded by MetLife Foundation and recently BlackRock that works to drive financial health and well-being for low to moderate income Americans. And we work with all types of financial um, organizations to do that. And to date, we've uh, run over 70 experiments with companies to basically show how we can drive financial health by making small changes. Mm-hmm. And i uh, really excited to be here today chatting about it. Okay. So then Common Sense Labs has been around for, as you said, like four years or so. What was the, what was, what prompted you to, to found that organization? Yeah, uh, great question. So generally, as, as many folks know, the financial health in the U.S is dismal. We save too little, we spend too much, uh, and we take on debt in order to do it. And the intuition for many practitioners in industry is really if if consumers or us just knew more about financial decision making, if our literacy, our financial literacy was improved, you know, we could make progress on the financial health of Americans. And 
sadly, this is just not correct. So <laughs> teaching people about money does not change our behavior. It's kind of like, you know, that a cake or cookies are bad for you, but you still eat them. So the really behavioral science kind of offers a, a much broader toolkit there. And, and it suggests that if we change the environment of decision-making, that behavior can change. And what I mean by that is if you make something much easier, uh, potentially people will save. Or if you have the right anchor when you're paying off your credit card, people may pay off more. We don't need to overinvest in telling people the right behavior. We just need to make the environment conducive to doing that. And so uh, really, we have this really strong, Dan, and I have this really strong foundation and, and belief that we could make substantial in, improvements in financial health by doing this. And, and MetLife Foundation is committed to that vision as well. And so they came along and basically offered us the opportunity to do grant-funded work, which really allows us to do research within companies and institutions that we couldn't otherwise do. So we're able to go into a credit union and change the form flips and then figure out if we change it in one way versus another, can we increase the likelihood of savings? Mm -hmm. And all of these things are, are interesting insights that when scaled can make significant differences. And, and behavioral science kind of offers some, a lot of hope actually to the industry that, that actually things can change with small differences and small changes. Yep. No, I agree. I feel like I've written about this where I, I feel like the promise of fintech really is to make, is to make your life easier and to make, and to bring the underserved into, you know, into the, the modern financial system and to do it in a way that is, is financially healthy. And, you know, I think we're, we're at the cusp. I feel like this decade is going to be a huge decade when it comes to, when it comes to that or, you know, to, to really improving consumers' financial health. Because as you say, you know, we, we, here we are, we live in the richest country in the world, but most people are poor um, or many, many people are, are poor and that's, um, they don't have savings of, of any kind, many people. So, we got it. We've got. We've got to do something about this. And so I'm, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show. I'm really excited about about behavioral science as a way to kind of to 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 show the way how how to do this. So I guess maybe let's just start, let's step back for a second and just um, talk about the. You know, you obviously you know you're, you you probably are fully aware of the. There's many banking apps, fintech apps, saving budgeting apps that are out there um, today. There's probably hundreds and hundreds to choose from. What is wrong with most of the consumer fintech apps today? That's a great, great question. And by the way, for some background, I actually started my career at and how I met Dan Ariely was at Intuit. And mm -hmm. I was working on Quicken Online prior to them, prior to Intuit buying Mint. So kind of deeply understand the evolution of, of fintech and our PFM, personal mm -hmm. financial management and I think basically what, what folks are forgetting in the industry is that behavior change is hard. And just telling people a summary of how much they're spending in a pie chart or in a SMS message is not enough to change behavior. And we kind of are relying too much on, you know, algorithms and spending insights in order to motivate people to change. And so you kind of imagine, you, you basically say, how much do people really want to know how much they spent on restaurants? Right. And, and actually, most often we don't want to know. This is just, this is just depressing information. <laughs> uh, if, if you could think about something that you would want to know, it may be, you know, how to uh, have a really delicious meal. And you say, oh, and by the way, you can also spend less on it. But, but instead, the personal financial management 
tools are really bent and committed to giving us really sad information. Most Americans' pie charts are going to look pretty uh, pretty bad when they look at them, and, and we call this information aversion. So there's very low likelihood you're going to want to log back in if you see some bad information, just like you wouldn't want to step on the scale if you don't like the number. And so I think personal financial management and fintech in general kind of needs to move beyond getting to the like exact right answer and the insights that they give people and really focus on the barriers to financial health, mm-hmm. spending too much, what are they spending on, um, saving too little. How easy is it to save? Do people know how much to save? What is the norm in our society? The norm in our society is to actually, you know, go into debt and, and, and have credit card debt, right? We see other people spending, we don't see them saving. Uh, all these are very difficult problems. And I feel like we're just skimming the top on kind of the easy stuff, which technology can solve, but not that actually is the behavior change driver. Right, right, for sure. So, so are there any, any companies that you think in the finance space that actually are doing, are doing a good job in this area? None. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be depressing. (laughs) Yeah, no, of course, that's not the answer. Um, There are a few and and I'll I'll go in. The the one I I do like the most is is Digit. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of a extremely behaviorally informed concept, which is you take money automatically from people's checking accounts and move it into a savings account. And it's a set and forget type of app where we're not asking people to think about how much they want to save. They're just doing it for you. And so that, that in general is kind of the essence of, of the behavioral insights on we, we do things that are easy and we don't do things that are hard. So we like Digit. We also uh, like EarnUp, and I, I can talk about them more later, but they are, are an app that basically helps people pay their mortgage. Uh, they're also doing car loans and student loans. And they do it in a pretty clever way, such that they're letting you pay it aligned with your payday. So if we think about kind of budgeting in general, it's very difficult when you have bills at different times and different amounts and you get paid at uh, at different times during the month. It's it's a complex math equation. And so if we can line up our bills and income, basically the world gets incredibly easy. Uh, And most people, by the way, already do this. People do paycheck budgeting. Mm -hmm. uh, If you to folks who are, are living on the line, you have one paycheck for rent and one paycheck for your t- utilities or one paycheck for rent and one paycheck for everything else. And so what EarnUp does is cleverly align that. And um, by doing that, actually, because of how the uh, months line up, and if you pay every, every two weeks, you actually end up making a couple more payments a year, a couple extra payments that you wouldn't have otherwise made if you're on a monthly schedule. So for by default, their platform is just better for consumers than a normal mortgage servicer. And then um, we've worked with them to actually amp up how much people pay on their, on their loans even further and doing an experiment to basically round up their debt payment and um, doing an experiment to see that, that most people are actually interested in paying more every month despite kind of our, our monthly payment. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe we could just dig into that a little bit. I'm curious because I know that you teamed up with them for the, to do some an experiment and I guess maybe can you just maybe, I mean, I know you've sort of touched on it already, but I'd like to dig into the experiment and the different options and how or explain why people decided to take more money uh, out of their paycheck and, and do this kind of thing. Yeah. So, so basically, we've actually done two experiments with EarnUp. I'll talk about the first one because they, they basically say the same thing in, in two proof points for this. So the, the first one is actually when we ask consumers 
who are earn up customers if they want to round up their debt payment. Now, why would you why would you do this? There's, you know, at some level, you're already paying, let's say, you know, 322 a month. That's a very, that's, that's a number. There's no reason to pay more. Um, and yet, in general, consumers are not thinking about this in their mental accounting of their budget. They're thinking about like they're paying, you know, 320 or 350. And so how we think about our mortgage will help us then with our, with our budgeting. And so what we did is ask people to round up to a, to a number, and that's likely the number they already were budgeting in their head. So, you, so you, you're just getting kind of free payments then. Mm-hmm. Um, we're paying a little bit more because uh, it's easy for them to account for. And we just sent two emails to ask people to do this. One normal, like one saying, hey, do you want to do this? And then a reminder. And we got 13% of people to round up their debt payment. And uh, this was, this was, you know, it's, it's just an email, <laughs> and 13% of people will now pay off their debt sooner because um, they're going to round up. The second experiment, and, and I'll come back to kind of why this is after explaining the second experiment. The second experiment, we gave folks who had a mortgage the option to pay more on their mortgage, and this was in the same. This was instead of asking you know, kind of a one-off, do you want to round up? This is actually, we framed it within a sign-up flow. And so people then have the option to kind of permanently pay either what the mortgage was or a little bit more. And we had six, in this case, when it was within a sign-up flow, um, and this is kind of general behavioral science where people will do things when it's easy, uh, within a sign-up flow, 64% of people chose to pay more than their actual mortgage payment. Yeah. So, so this is fascinating, right? Because we, we generally, you think about people trying to like pay less and like get away with, you know, like just the making sure that they make the payment, you know, but in reality, you know, we have, we have, we understand that, that mortgages cost us money. And when we have money, we want to pay more. We call this latent demand. We're basically, you know, credit card companies, mortgage servicers, et cetera, are giving us the number that we want to pay, whether it be the minimum or your monthly payment. Um, and there are people out there who will pay more and, you know, 64% of them will pay more, um, but we're not actually offering it. And so, you know, this is many people think about kind of the Apple iPhone and, and iPad as being the, the classic example of latent demand where it's not somebody is coming up and saying, I really need an, an iPad. Um, but when Apple offers it, they get it because there's this difference between what people are using and what they would actually use if the ideal product was out there. But you never know unless it's offered. Mm -hmm. And so what we find here is that people are wanting to pay off their debt, right? We don't want to stay in debt. And and yet kind of the lenders and, and fintechs aren't making it as easy as it could be to pay it off. And so it's not that we don't want to do it. It's just, it's just not easy. And when we tend to make it easy, all of a sudden people will, will opt into this. Right, right, and that's that, that. That makes sense, and it's 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 fascinating. By the way, thirteen percent response rate on an email or two emails is is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and so, dude, it goes it goes to show, as you say, it goes to show how much people want to improve their their their, their financial lives. But and you know, it's funny because the, the examples you've given so far, digit and and the, the two experiments with up are all kind of about just paying a little bit more than what you want. Or like obviously digit is about saving, but it's still, it's just sort of taking that, you know, it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's not a big psychological barrier to, 
you know, someone mm-hmm. is paying $322 to say them pay $330 or $340. It's, uh, and I, it's, it's super interesting that, uh, I mean, that, that to me is, I mean, a revelation in of itself. And that, uh, if everyone, every, every lender should be offering the ability for people to pay more if they want in a, in a simple, mm-hmm. in a simple workflow. That was so you said 64% when given the option on a mortgage pay, are willing to pay more. I wonder what it would be for, you know, for other types of, of loans. That's, uh, that's, that truly is, uh, yeah. fascinating. By the way, this is only this is an experiment as well, so we keep it fairly controlled. Right. So imagine if we were trying, where <laughs> where we would actually, you know, like highlight it and and say, do this. Experts recommend this is the thing you should do, or make it a bigger option than the other. So, so, so in general, you know, given it's an experiment, we think that actually people can do much more with this insight um, if they were to to scale it. Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure. So then what about, I mean, I know you, you've worked with a lot of companies doing experiments and doing different different programs. Maybe, can you give us another, another example of something, not, it doesn't have to even be, you know, lending related or whatever, but what, uh, what, what are other examples? Yep. I'll, I'll give you a, a few. So one that we, one that we like is one with, actually, I'll start with the, the research one and then we'll move to an applied one. So we did a we built actually an auto loan calculator uh, and and tried to get people to buy less of a car. Hmm. And what I mean by that is spend less on a less on a car. And the lending industry in general um, tends to do something across all mortgage and lending and student is they ask people what they what they can afford to borrow versus what they should be borrowing. Right. Right. So. So imagine that you're trying to get a house. Is really the house the only goal that you have in life? Of course not. You want to send your kids to college. You want to take vacations. You have much more going on than this mortgage. And yet when you're approved for a mortgage, you're approved at the very highest possible rate you can afford. But really, that's not what you should be taking. You should likely be taking much less given you have all of these other life goals, not to mention retirement. Mm -hmm. And so what we did in the calculator was instead of starting with what people could afford to borrow, we we thought about what they should do. So we asked them about their life goals. We asked them, you know, about saving for retirement. And we asked them about the things that they wanted to do in their life. And if they have a spouse and what the spouse wants to do. And then we also highlighted the true cost of car ownership. Because what happens is that people anchor on one number. And this, this happens kind of all over the place. When we're picking health insurance, we anchor on, on the premium. And so when you're picking a car, you're actually anchoring on the price of the car uh, loan per month. So if the dealer offers you, you know, a, a $400 loan, that's what you anchor on, not realizing that you should be adding in repairs, insurance, all the things, gas, all the things that go along with a car. Mm-hmm. And so what we did when we had the calculus, we brought people through this and they, we had them estimate in the beginning how much they would likely to spend. The average was 15000 and when we did the experiment and showed them all the things of the, how much a car would cost, the gas repairs, the insurance, and made them think about all the other things to do in life, we brought that estimate down to twelve thousand five hundred. Hmm. And and I think what this what this highlights is that there are small and big decisions in life. Small decisions are the stuff we do every day with our money. You know, this is going out to eat. This is entertainment. And then there are big decisions. And big decisions are uh, buying a house, having kids. <laughs> We're not helping with kids in this in our current work, but but probably one of the bigger decisions financially people make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by far, and and for those decisions, we should 
we should slow down. We should really stop and kind of think about what we want versus kind of going what we typically do, which is looking at the heuristics, the sticker price or what the car dealership says is a good deal. So behavioral science in general kind of offers this idea that we can actually use heuristics to make better decisions, but for bigger decisions, um, and this is kind of as a lending opportunity, most lending decisions are bigger decisions, we should actually slow people down uh, and really them kind of think more rationally about the opportunity cost of their decision making and, and the utility that they'll get from something. Yeah, no, I've often thought that. I mean, whether or not you buy a, a $4 cup of coffee is irrelevant almost compared to what sort of home loan you want to get or what's even a car loan or whatever. It's uh, they're such big numbers that they have such a big impact. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's super interesting. Okay, maybe maybe one more example before we move on, if you could. Yeah, for sure. So not sure if listeners know about Steady. So Steady is a app that basically helps gig economy workers find and get jobs. And um, they're actually quite clever in the fact that they've flipped the paradigm for personal financial management, which is mostly about tracking expenses. And in Steady's case, they actually help you track your income. Now, income, that's kind of, it's like, why would someone need help tracking their income? Well, there's a large percentage of the population who has more than one job. And so uh, that makes sense. If you're a gig economy worker, you actually don't have a regular paycheck. Um, but in general, people also are more attracted to gain than losses and expenses are losses. And Steady has basically focused on income, which is much more clever and it's, it's a gain. Mm-hmm. Now, Steady has the same type of problem that the most fintechs have, which is getting someone to do something hard, which is think their bank account. And this, it seems like something small, but, you know, in reality, for anyone who's worked in this space, we know that any disruption of kind of the industry requires you to, to get access to their, to their bank account, whether that be, you know, starting something new like a chime and you have to make a first transfer, or it could be um, this account where you're basically helping them track something. And so w- what we've noticed is not pe- people really aren't trying within the industry to get people to sync their bank account. They just use the Plaid interface and, and have an API call and just hope that people go through. And so what we wanted to do is help people understand the trade-offs of, of doing it or not doing it. And so we just changed the calls to action. So we changed the calls to action from something like continue, that was the control. And then we had two other variations. One was complete setup and one was accept or decline. And we're having them actually accept or decline the feature. Mm. And that's interesting because most of the time you're thinking a bank account, the app actually assumes that the value prop is clear. And if you just think your bank account, you'll get it and you, you understand it. But what study did, and we helped them and proposed this intervention, is you say, you're going to accept the benefit. You're going to accept this or you're going to decline it. And so, and then the other thing was the complete setup versus uh, versus don't, which is goal completion. And so the general, I'm going to give you a few numbers here, but the general, like just clicking of the button. So in the control was 35% of people clicked continue. And this is not who finished it because obviously there's a high drop off. But in both of our, our forced choice, we call it, which is accept or decline or missing info, which is complete, we had 60% of people click that button to, to start the process. Wow. I know. That's amazing. <laughs> and, then, and then the people who finished it, 
you know, in the control, we had uh, 7% and in the forced choice, and then both the missing information is complete setup in the forced choice, accept or decline, um, beat the control significantly with missing information, um, getting a 16% link rate and forced choice getting 116 close to 12% link rate. So um, again, just kind of like these small changes that could really help someone's financial health. It's not that people don't want to track their income and see it all together to improve their earning potential. It's that sometimes it's just hard. And if we can make things easier or more appealing or change the, the actual flow, we can actually help more people kind of achieve their financial goals. Um, And and it's kind of a small little example, but really highlights the the potential and the power of designers and systems designers to help people. Mm -hmm. Sure, that makes sense. And and just 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 so you know that the the listeners, regular listeners, will know. Steady, we had Adam Roseman on the show. I think it was about a year ago now. Talking about talking about his offering, and uh, he it, it is a, it's a it's a really interesting company. It's one of the ones that are, when you start thinking about, oh yeah, of course you're, you know, you need to think about the income side of your of your uh, you know equation of, of your balance sheet. That needs to really be a part of uh, everybody's uh, what everybody's thinking, particularly those people who are who really are living paycheck to paycheck. Exactly, and it's just more fun to think about income too for folks. Yes, so yes, it, indeed. It, just a much more appealing value prop for folks to, to get more money, you know, versus kind of think about saving it, which which also kind of is a is a loss, right? You're putting it away and it's not working for you. So while savings is good, it doesn't feel as good as making more money. Right, right, sure. So you mentioned about your, your supporters. I just would like to, you know, I think it was MetLife Foundation and the uh, and BlackRock. So maybe. I'm very interested about this BlackRock Emergency Savings Initiative, and uh, I think you know, they are one of your partners. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that program. Yeah. So, so BlackRock a, a couple of years ago got really interested in in helping helping increase the financial health of, of low income Americans, and, and they did a really wonderful process where they went through and kind of just said, like, how how can we do this? And they interviewed kind of the top thinkers in the area and in, in the field. And they land on what landed on what most people uh, who've been working in this field land on, which is we just don't have enough money <laughs> in our savings accounts in order to allow us to, to do much of anything. So imagine that you're trying to get a better job. You still need a little bit of money in order to make that dream come true. When you have no money in your savings account, folks go into scarcity mindset, which means we make worse decisions because we're really present biased. We focus on the immediate needs we have versus our future needs. Mm-hmm. And kind of, and the stats are just, as, as folks likely who are listening know, you know, 40% of Americans have less than $400. Like, so generally it's a problem. And so they basically said, we really need to increase. We, we want to fund increasing the savings balances for low-income Americans. And I think, and I'd like to kind of defend maybe what folks are believing that this is in their best interest as BlackRock to do this as they're an investment, you know, company that yeah. this makes sense. Really, they were completely separate. Their funding and philanthropy of this is completely separate from their main organization. And the theory of change is not about getting people to you know, low-income low Americans to all of a sudden become BlackRock clients. That's, and they understand that's not going to happen. This is really just kind of investing in the financial health of Americans. And so we've, uh, we've appreciated their support. And, and what they did when they, when they started this funding effort 
was gather three organizations. Common Sense is one of them, Commonwealth and the Financial Health Network, previously CFSI, are the other two, and basically gave us the challenge to increase increase the savings balances. And they're doing it in a way that prioritizes scale. And so our work is basically to get large companies to offer their employees savings accounts. It's to add kind of savings opportunities for you know, kind of infrastructure of the U.S., whether that be within a bank, an employer, um, or yeah, actually, I'll, I'll talk about Uber. Um, we just brought Uber on as a as a partner, and we're creating savings accounts for drivers. Mm-hmm. And you know, the 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 opportunity here is basically saying, you know, we have Uber, which is a massive organization, and they're in charge of people's paychecks. And if we can, instead of us having to go roundabout and try to convince people after they've gotten money into their bank account to just, you know, convince them to save a little bit more. If we have the actual paychecks, then it's very easy to say, you know, the last ride of my trip, I'm going to move into savings or to attach a, a prize link savings lottery to an Uber account and have people get motivated to save because there's some, there's some additional bonus. And, and so the BlackRock Savings Initiative basically has our, our team work within these large companies where we're doing research on how to get people to save while also scaling that impact. So, you know, with Uber, we're going to hit all of their drivers, but we're also going to learn something about how, how to actually convince folks to save. Right, right, for sure. Now, that's, that's interesting. So we're, we're running out of time, but a couple of things I really want to get to. First, I would, I wanted to, to maybe just get your perspective on you know, you, you look at you said you look at the, the the fintech world or if it's financial services in general, and I'm sure it must drive you crazy to see so many um, bad bad practices uh, in play or not or not optimal practices. Let me just say that. So, what do you think would happen if every bank, every fintech company used you know behavioral science in their product design? Yeah. So one thing I you know I I think I think folks want this like big innovative strategy that would say, this is what we do to, to, to change financial health. And like behavioral science is so much simpler than that. If we could do one thing, like this is our dream intervention, is that at the point that people are signing up for payroll or the point that they are signing up for a new bank, we just default them into saving a little bit more money. So, you know, we've done this for retirement savings where we moved it now, the, the reason Americans have retirement savings is because we've automatically enrolled them into it. It's not because people want and care about deeply about their future. It's because they've been automatically <laughs> right. And And so I think we, we tend to think that the financial health crisis is, you know, because people don't have a lot of money and they don't want to save. And, and I would just say, like, actually, it's just because it's not easy. And so it, can we just create automatic enrollment for short-term savings? And, like, all of a sudden, people, Americans love a savings balance. It's just, it's not rocket science here. You know, we, we, we've known this for retirement savings. Let's just do it for short-term savings. So that would be one insight is like, I don't think folks, I think people really want to see like big innovative strategy on this. And like, it's, it's silly simple with just making things easier for people who, who generally life is, is very difficult. Right. And then the other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm nervous and this is not particularly uh, what you asked, but, but I'd like to share. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm about uh, the move that we're making kind of as a field to every day is payday. You know, this is the evens going here, earn in, 
uh, pay active. There's just tons of apps that are helping people, you know, correctly get access to their, their earned wages. And we really like that, that disruption of the payday uh, lending industry, but it's an overcorrection to basically have people have access to their wages every day. And I say that because of what we talked about up front, which is people do paycheck budgeting. And, And so imagine a world by which you now have to, you get paid every day and now you have to figure out how much you spend on daily expenses like food and entertainment, how much you spend and how much you should put away for your rent and how much you should put away for utilities. Like that's just a burden. And, and so we have to kind of, be, if we believe that the infrastructure, like how our accounts are organized and the automatic defaults and the automatic enrollment is key to increasing financial health and well-being, every day is payday is just irresponsible because you're, we're giving people money without helping us manage it. And so, and, and knowing kind of that we have temptations, especially when we're in scarcity mode and knowing that like, it's very difficult to do these math equations, we're going to fail. And so I, I worry that basically this will make people in the long run worse off uh, right. if we don't put in guardrails to, to this everyday payday trend. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's one of my really topics I'm interested in deeply as well as this earned income access. And I feel like there needs to be guardrails in place. And you know, every day is payday. And I think that the, the two-week pay period or the you – know, it, it's an anachronism. It's it, it, it shouldn't necessarily be be the way we are we, we are paid. But I, I get I get where you're coming from. But I think maybe if every day was payday and we had a savings component to that that was automated, that would would that satisfy you? Yeah, that that would definitely help uh, satisfy. <laughs> but the intuition that folks will have is that the savings component should be like. 10%. And, and I think it should be flipped. It should be 90% of your money goes in. And by the way, savings for this, I don't mean like long-term savings. I mean like setting aside money for rent. Right. I so it'd be like 90% of your money goes and sets aside because, because think about housing, right? I think it's, forget the percentage, but close to 50% of people are paying um, 50% of their income on, on rent uh, in, in the low-income brackets. And so the amount that people need to set aside per paycheck for fixed bills and expenses is very high. Right. And, and so as long as we get those defaults right, which is like how much you're actually setting aside so that you can pay your bills on time, I think we'll be okay. Right. Okay. So we're out of time, but last question, maybe you could just share some of the projects that, that maybe one or two of the projects that uh, you're working on at Common Sense Lab this year in 2020 that you think is, is interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think I'm really excited about the Uber work. I think in, in general, this is kind of required, again, as we think about kind of the changing nature of work is to allow people to have no fee access to their money when and, and put it aside in the savings account. So, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, by the way, I also agree Uber wages should be increased, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't have a, a savings account. Mm-hmm. So this is a conversation. And we're working with Clarity we'll, and we'll launch an experiment uh, result soon to study the effects of, of budgeting on financial health. And so, you know, there's, in general, we're skeptical that kind of a normal budgeting system by which you're given, you know, the opportunity to categorize all your expenses and then see how you're doing and then change behavior will will work. And so we've tried a few varieties of that with them to, to figure out if we can if we can move the needle there and and why it works and why doesn't it work because they're a, a great partner in kind of giving us access to data to, to more deeply understand the field. Mm-hmm. And then we'll continue work uh, with folks like Steady. And then I think 
I don't think we've announced our new partners yet, so I don't think I can share who our who our 2020 new partners are. But but we'll be working on things like uh, student loan debt. But by the way, one of the the things, as we mentioned again, one of the tragedies of of this is people are approved for the amount that they can borrow, not that they should borrow. Right. Yeah. And so really, we're 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 fixing a problem. And everyone's concerned about helping people pay off their student loan debt. We should just help them take less. Mm-hmm. And, and so that that's the root of the cause that we're we're going to work on. And then and then also kids. <laughs> so there's very little research around financial health and kids. Uh, much of reason being because studying kids from a IRB perspective, which is the checks and balances you have to go through when you're doing academic research, is is difficult. We're taking on one partner that will help us uh, do that at a more system systematic level. And so I think we'll add to the field a lot with, uh, with our research on kind of uh, how actually helping people, uh, helping parents help their kids can have long-term effects. Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Kristen. It was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. See ya. Well, I hope you found that as fascinating and awe-inspiring even as I did. I felt like some of the revelations there were just amazing. And after we hung up the phone, I, I, I was thinking that, you know, we really we have an obligation as an industry to take some of these learnings and apply it to, you know, to our app or to, you know, to our offering online or whatever it is. Because I mean, while it's one thing, it's it, we, all, we all want to make make a, a bigger profit. We all want to do we all want to do better. The bottom line is we have to make the health of our, our our customers better. And if you're focused on that, I feel like you're going to become a more profitable company in the long run anyway. So on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lendit Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register.